Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Freedom Through Faith. Prepare to be blessed as pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau leads us into the anointed study of the Word of God, teaching and empowering you how to impact your world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, teaching you how to receive the blessings and provisions of God and how to walk through this life with Freedom Through Faith. And now, here's Pastor Robert Thibodeau. We now rejoin today's message already in progress. I know I'm treading on some spiritual toes here, but just hang with me. Consider this like a spiritual surgery, and you're on the operating table. I got you sliced open. I'm taking all the the bad stuff out, but don't jump up off the table and start running out. Let me get you all stitched back up here. Amen. Number three. Religious involvement. Religious involvement is not necessarily a proof of true faith. There are people who have, according to Paul, writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verse 5, a form of godliness, but powerless, an empty kind of religion. Remember the virgins in Matthew chapter 25 who were waiting and waiting and waiting for the coming of the bridegroom, who's represented by Christ here. And they're waiting and waiting, but when he comes, they don't go in. They had everything together except the oil in their lamps. That which was most necessary was missing from their life. The oil represents the new life, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They were not regenerated. They were religious. They were dressed up in their costumes or whatever. And they were there. They were present. They were waiting but they weren't ready. You can have external, visible morality. You can have intellectual knowledge. You can have religious involvement. Be active every time the church doors open, and it may not indicate genuine faith. That brings me to number four, active ministry. Balaam was a prophet. Saul of Tarsus thought he was serving God by killing Christians. Judas was a public preacher. Judas was an apostle. Remember Matthew 7, many will say to me, Jesus said, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, done many wonderful works, and cast out demons in your name? What did Jesus say to them? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Ministry activity does not necessarily prove you have saving faith. Number five is a conviction of sin. Lots of people feel bad about what they've done, me included. Lots of people feel bad about sin. Listen, the whole world is full of people that are just guilt-ridden to the core. I remember back 15 years ago or more now, 
when I was taking college classes back in Texas, I had my major, which was aviation, but I had my minor in psychology. And we were studying and would talk about people going to psychologists, a psychiatrist. And from the tests that we were studying, it was evident that most of the people who went to the psychologist or the psychiatrist were suffering in some form or fashion from guilt. And people used to write books about that. And the psychologists of the world have absolutely no answer for guilt. Because the only answer is the gospel. And they won't go down that road. Now what's happened in the last 15 to 20 years is now you do not have any people at all today who feel guilty. Because we've come up with a new psychology that eliminates guilt. Now all we do is we displace the guilt on somebody else. Well, it's their fault I'm not prospering. It's their fault I am the way I am. The new therapy is to make the person totally irresponsible for any of the guilt that they might feel inside for doing bad things and to free them from that guilt. And you do that by making the, basically, ultimate virtue is pride or self-fulfillment. Self-grandizement, self-glory, self-esteem. And that eliminates the need to feel guilty. So we really have come up with an utterly ungodly, unchristian, unbiblical psychology that has taken the guilt issue and completely eliminated it from human perspective. And you can see that in the church today. Instead of the preacher standing up to preach freedom from guilt to guilty sinners... They expect him to preach self-esteem to ego-centered people. The whole climate in church has changed today. And we've been skewed in our message because we have allowed the philosophy of the day to create a new kind of sinner who thinks he feels no guilt. The most important thing you can preach to a bunch of sinners is the sin in their lives and the law of God, which they fall short of and the impending judgment that is awaiting them. But that's not a popular message today, is it? Because the new philosophy, the new psychology, has long ago eliminated guilt. We don't have people in church feeling guilty anymore because they've learned that therapy will help them and tell them they can put that guilt on somebody else who did something to them years ago. I don't care who you talk to. When they go into that kind of situation of counseling, inevitably it will come around. They'll say something to the effect of, I've been abused. I'm a victim here. I'm not responsible for the way I am. You see it on the news all the time with mass murderers all the time. Amen. So the sinner is dispossessed of his guilt, dispossessed of a direct approach from the gospel. I like it. I liked it better. When sinners knew they were sinners and felt guilty, amen? It was much easier to deal with. You've seen more altar crawls that way. But there are some people who do feel guilty. And some people who do feel guilty about their sin. In the Bible, Felix trembled under the preaching of Paul, but yet he never left his idols. The Holy Spirit convicts many of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and many that he convicts, they don't respond with true repentance. 
Some may even confess their sins. Some may even abandon their sins and say, I don't want to live this way anymore. I'm going to shape up and amend my ways. But they do not necessarily come to saving faith. That's reformation, not regeneration. No degree of conviction of sin is conclusive evidence of saving faith. Believe me, even the demons are convicted of their sin of turning away from God because the Bible says they tremble. But yet they're not saved, not by a long shot. They never can be, amen? Number six in these examples of some things that people display but does not necessarily mean that they are truly saved is assurance. Some people will say, well, I must be a Christian. I feel like one. I think I'm one. Listen, just think this through. If to think you're a Christian makes you a Christian, then nobody could be deceived, correct? Because as soon as you thought you were a Christian, you would be one. Now, there are probably some who actually do believe this. And again, I say they are deceived. But if you believe this way, then you are saying that you could never be deceived. The whole point of Satan's deception is to make people think they're Christians, but who really are not. That's the whole point. That's his whole job. Many people feel secure. They feel that, you know, they're saved, but they're not. I'll tell you, there are millions of Mormons and millions of Jehovah Witnesses and millions of Christian scientists who believe they're on their way to heaven, but they're not. People say, God won't condemn me. I feel good about myself. I have an assurance inside me. I'm okay. That means nothing when it comes to true salvation. Amen. I used to believe I was saved. I grew up in a Christian home, went to church. My grandparents were elders in the church. I took the confirmation classes. I was a Lutheran growing up. I became a member of the church. I was in. I had it made. I was going to heaven. Or so I believed. Then I joined the army. Through the course of time, I did the things that soldiers and military people are known for. And when someone would come up to witness to me, I would immediately say, oh, I'm already saved. Go talk to somebody else. But when it came to true repentance, I realized how deceived I had really been for all of those years. Amen. And number seven, the last one, is a time of decision. I hear people say, well, I know I'm a Christian because I remember when I signed that card. You see, that's a popular way of doing altar calls today in churches. There are no altar calls where people come forward. A lot of these new churches, they just pass out cards, sign your name on the card, and then you'll be saved. I remember when I prayed a prayer, they'll say. I remember when I went forward, though, in the church. So, see, there are those people who will go forward just to say they went forward. I've heard people say, I remember right where I was the moment I did that. Really? Listen, just because you remember a moment doesn't mean that moment meant anything. It doesn't mean that a decision, a decision there was valid. Nobody's salvation is verified by a past moment. People have prayed prayers and gone forward in church service or side cards and gone into the prayer rooms and even been baptized and joined churches. 
and they never had saving faith. So those are some of the things that people will display, but they are non-proofs. They could be saved, and those things would be evident in their life. Those things could be evident in their life, but they're not saved. So they don't. those things that I just said, those seven things, do not really prove anything. And you say, well, then what does prove saving faith, Brother Bob? Well, let me give you a quick list. The number one thing you must have is a love for God. Now you're talking... You're talking down about the heart because Romans 8, 7 says, the carnal mind is enmity against God. The non-Christian resents God, rebels against God down on the inside, but the regenerate mind is set to love the Lord with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, all their strength. His delight is in the excellency of God who is the first and highest affection of his renewed soul. God becomes his chief happiness. The only thing he wants to do is please God. And by the way, there's a big difference between such love for God and the selfish attitude that focuses only on my own happiness and sees God as a means to an end, rather as me to the end of glorifying him. In fact, Jesus said, if you love the Father, or I'm sorry, if you love your father, your mother more than me, you're not even my disciple. If you love your family members more than you love Jesus, more than you love the Father, that means you've put somebody in place of God. And Jesus said, you are not my disciple. That's in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. Do you love God? Do you love God's nature? Do you love God's glory? Do you love his name? Do you love his kingdom? Do you love his holiness? Do you love his will? Supreme love for God is decisive evidence of true saving faith. Is your heart lifted up when you sing praises because of him? Do you even know any songs of praise? I'll leave that one alone compared to some of the trash people listen to on the radio today. I'm not even going to go down that road. It'd take the rest of my time. We're almost out of time. Secondly is repentance from sin. The proper love for God must involve a hatred of sin. That's obvious. Who wouldn't understand that? If I love somebody, you assume that my loving them means that I seek their well-being, right? If I said to you, I love my wife and kids, but in actuality, I could care less what happened to my family, you question my love because true love seeks the highest good of its object. So if I say I love God, then I will have to hate sin because sin offends God. Sin blasphemes God. Sin curses God. Sin seeks to destroy God and God's work and God's kingdom. Sin killed the Son of God. And if I say I love God, but I tolerate sin in my life, then you have every reason to question my love. I cannot love God without hating that which is set to destroy him. So true repentance involves confession. It involves turning from sin. I should be grieved over my sin. 
I should ask myself, do I have a settled conviction of the evil of sin? Does sin appear to me as the evil and bitter thing it really is? Does conviction of sin in me increase as I walk with Christ? Do I hate it not merely because it ruins my own soul, but because it's offensive to my God whom I love? Does it? Does it more grieve me more when I sin than when I have trouble? In other words, what grieves me the most, my misfortune or my sin? Do my sins appear many, frequent, and aggravated? Do I find myself grieved over my sin more than the sin of others? That is a mark of salvation, amen? True saving faith. It loves God and it hates what God hates, which is sin, amen? Thirdly, it manifests genuine humility. It manifests genuine humility. This obviously comes to us through the Beatitudes, the poor in spirit, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Those who in Matthew 18 are like a little child, humble and dependent. Those who are in self-denial, willing to take up their cross and follow him. The Lord receives those who come with a broken and contrite spirit. James says he gives grace to the humble. We must come just like the parochial son did. You remember what he said in Luke 15? Think about, I think it's about verse 21 or so. He said, Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. There's no pride. There's no ego about religious achievement or spiritual accomplishment. Just genuine humility. I'm not worthy. And fourth, there's a devotion to God's glory. True saving faith that manifests genuine salvation shows a devotion to God's glory. Whatever we do, whatever we eat, whatever we drink, we are literally consumed with the glory of God. We do what we do because we want to glorify him. Oh, sure, we fail in all these things sometimes, but the direction of our life is in loving him and hating sin and being genuinely humble and self-denying and knowing our unworthiness and still being totally devoted to the glory of God. And number five is continual prayer. Humble, submissive, believing prayer is a true mark of faith. We cry, Abba, Father, because the Spirit in us prompts that cry. Jonathan Edwards once preached a sermon titled, Hypocrites are deficient in the duty of secret prayer. It's true. Hypocrites may pray publicly because that's what Jesus said hypocrites do. They want to impress people. But they are deficient in the duty of secret prayer. A true believer with true saving faith has a personal prayer life, a private prayer life, and seeks communion alone with God. Number six, another mark of saving faith is selfless love. John says, if you don't love your neighbor, your brother, or one in need, how are we to believe the love of God dwells in you? And also in 1 John 3, uh, John says, if you love God, you'll love whom God loves. And we love him and others because that's the response to him loving us. John 13 says, By this men will know you are true disciples by our love for each other. Number seven, separation from the world. Paul told the Corinthians that we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is from God. John put it this way, Love not the world, nor the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. A true believer is separated from the world. We don't seek worldly things. We don't seek worldly pleasures. We seek God. Amen. 
Again, I say we fail in all these areas, but these are the directions for our lives. We aren't perfect. We haven't arrived yet. But we love God and we want to love him more. We hate sin and we want to hate sin more. We have a genuine humility and we want more of it. We are devoted to God's glory. We should have a prayer life that's private and personal with him. We have a love for others that comes from God. And we find ourselves disassociated from the world as a general rule. And then just two others. We're getting ready to close here in just a couple minutes. Spiritual growth. Is another mark. If you're a true Christian, you're going to be growing all the time. That means you're growing to be more and more like Christ. Life produces life. If you're alive, you're going to grow. There's no other way. You'll improve. You'll increase. You'll grow. Because whoever has that new work begun, Philippians 1 6 says, is going to see it perfected. It's going to go on, it's going to keep moving. The Spirit is going to move you from one level of glory to the next. So you look at your life. You should see spiritual growth. You see the decreasing frequency of sin in your life. The increasing pattern of righteousness and devotion to God. And finally, obedience. Obedient living. Every branch in me bears fruit. John 15 and Ephesians 2.10. Paul says, Look, you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that you walk in them. That's obedience. We are saved unto the obedience of faith. So look at your life right now. Do you see these things, including selfless love, separation from the world, spiritual growth and obedience? If so, that is evidence of saving faith. Now, if we go back to our text, the cross declares God's justice and righteousness. The cross exalts God's grace, which is appropriated only by faith. Thirdly, and just ever so briefly, the cross reveals God's consistency. God's consistency. Look at verse 29. What's the point here? Well, the Jews are going to say, look, we're justified by the works of the law. And now you're coming along and preaching to all these Gentiles that they're justified by faith. So that means there's two ways to heaven. Does God require works from us and grace and uh, through faith by them? Is God a merciful, saving God towards Gentiles, but a legal, condemning God towards Jews? Is that two different means of salvation? Two different standards of living? Of course, you realize, don't you, that the Jews believed they were saved by their works. So they were concluding that Paul was preaching a new way of salvation, which was not consistent with God's way. Paul says, is God the God of the Jews only? No. He is not the God, or is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes. And they would have to agree for yes, God is the God of all men. Isaiah 54 says, the God of the whole earth shall be called, or shall he be called. Jeremiah 16, 19 says, the nations, plural, shall come unto thee from the ends of the earth. They knew that. Zechariah 2.11 says, and many nations, plural, shall be joined to the Lord, and they shall be my people. So they knew he was the God of Jew and Gentile. All right then, since indeed God is one. That's the Greek order in verse 30. You see he is one, and you understand he's one. Since indeed God is one, he will justify the circumcised, that's the Jews, by faith. And he will also 
the uncircumcised, that's the Gentiles, through faith. Now here you see the consistency of God by faith alone. Amen. You look at the cross and you see, since indeed God is one, if God is one and he is the God of all men and he's the God of both Jews and Gentiles, then he is one God over all men who will have only one way to salvation or of salvation. He will justify all by faith. God saves all people the same way. He always has, he always will, always apart from works. He's one God, the one way for all men. God never changes. He is absolutely consistent all the time. The cross did not introduce a new way of salvation. It simply covered the sins of all the past believers, as well as all the future believers who came by faith. How is Noah saved? Go back, way back to Noah. Genesis says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. How is Moses saved? Go all the way back to Exodus. Moses found grace in the eyes of the Lord. How is Abraham saved? Romans 4 is all about that. Verse 3 says, Abraham believed God, and that was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's all the way back in Genesis 15. It's always the same way. By grace, through faith. By grace, through faith. In the Old Testament, they believed all that God revealed. They did not have Christ yet. They believed all that God revealed to them. The same way now after Christ. No one is, no one has, no one will ever be saved any other way than by faith. As God graciously offers forgiveness through the sacrifice of his son, which covers the sin of all sinners before him and after him. Amen? So the cross is the only way. From God's perspective, he declares his justice, exalts his grace, reveals his consistency. Lastly, this is rich. It confirms God's law. Verse 31. Of the Jews, they're going to say, oh, all right, salvation's by grace through faith. Forget the law. There is no more law. There's no more works. The law is useless, pointless. Why in the world did God through all of that anyway? Why did he go through all that law stuff if we aren't going to be saved by keeping the law? Do we nullify the law? He says, no, 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 no. May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. What do you mean by that, Brother Bob? Putting Jesus on the cross to pay the penalty for sin is the way God satisfies the law. He's holy. His law is just, righteous. Jesus' death proves it. Nothing, there's nothing more of a reflection of God's law as holy than the death of Christ. That's God's law that put him there. Amen? If you have never received Jesus as your Savior, I want you to do so right now. Pray this prayer with me out loud. Father, I come to you and your throne this day to obtain grace by faith in the death of Jesus Christ, that you honored his death and raised him from the dead. Jesus, come into my heart. Be the Lord of my life. Create in me a new man, one righteous in the eyes of God. And I thank you for that. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, we email me at brotherbob at ftfm.org and let us know. We want to rejoice with you because we know in whom we believe. Amen. Till next time, this is Pastor Robert to remind you, God loves you. We love you. Jesus loves you because he is Lord over all. He is the only way to salvation. Amen. He is the only way.
So in his name, we pray that you are blessed, whole, and prosperous, and that you live for him. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord. have just heard a message of encouragement from anointed pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau with Freedom Through Faith Ministries in Baltimore, Maryland. For more information on the Freedom Through Faith Ministries or to invite Pastor Thibodeau to your church, please visit our website www.ftfm.org. That's FTFM for Freedom Through Faith Ministries. Again, that's ftfm.org. Until next Next time, when we gather together around the Word of God, be blessed. And remember, we serve an awesome God. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.